Well, I invite you to turn to page 39 in your Sanctuary Bible, or you can also follow along on the bulletin. And the sermon text today is Genesis 38, the entire chapter, the entire chapter of Genesis 38. Before we begin with the reading, a few words maybe of background on this passage. There are two laws that govern family life, uh, not the only two, but two important ones for this story. And here they are, basically. The first one is sometimes called the law of leveret marriage. And the idea is that um, if a man has a wife and he dies, somebody has to take care of his widow. And, and in that time, a widow was really at risk. There was not a lot she could do. She, she was an at-risk person. She was very vulnerable without a husband. Uh, she couldn't own property in the same way as men could. She, she couldn't provide for herself in the same ways as men could. And so the law was that that man's brother who had died should then marry her. And if they have children together, raise those children as if they were the children of the deceased brother. Now, we don't do this anymore. We understand that. I mean, some of you, um, you're married to a man, and you could never imagine marrying his brother. Is that right? I mean, you just would like, no way. But so we don't do this anymore, and that's probably a good thing. Some of you are la- if you're laughing really loud, then I... That's, that dynamic is actually present in this room. Uh, many of you have brothers-in-law here that you would say, no, not him. Not him. Or, alternately, some of you men have sisters-in-law who you would say, uh, would I really have to do that? Oh, if my brother died, would I- I'd have to marry her? We don't do this anymore, but for them, at that time, this was life and death. This was... What provided for somebody who lost their husband? The other law uh, that governed life uh, in that time was the law of the firstborn's first blessing, the firstborn's uh, share in the family's fortune. And generally speaking, the firstborn got a double share of what all of his male siblings got. All right, And so we could look at that in, in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 15 through 17. You can read about how... Uh, Even if you love one wife more, but she bears you a son who's the second-born son, and you you love your first wife less, this was the case with, if you may remember, Jacob was first married to Leah, didn't really care for her as much as he cared for Rachel, but Leah bore him sons first, and then Rachel, and the law says you cannot treat the sons of your preferred wife as if they were the firstborn sons if they're not the firstborn sons. You have to treat your firstborn son as your firstborn son. And the way you do that when it comes to inheritance is that firstborn son of all the other sons gets a double portion of the inheritance. Your estate is divided up. So just as a quick example, say you have three sons. You would then divide your estate into four parts. The first son would get two of the four parts and the remaining sons would get one part each. Does that make sense? So the first porn gets double of all what the others do. So basically, you take the number of sons, you add one to it, divide that by the estate by that number, and you give the first son two of those. So if you had five sons, there'd be six shares of the estate. The first son would get two of them, etc. So that's, that's some of the context of our reading for today. Uh, the other part of this is that this comes right after the story of Joseph having these wonderful dreams about his brothers and his father and mother bowing down to him and and his brothers not liking this story very much. 
And so they take him and they throw him in a well. Uh, one of them even wants to kill him, but then they let him go and they sell him into slavery into Egypt. And so he's out of the picture, but right after this, this story comes. And so the action moves from all of the sons of Israel, all of Jacob's sons, to just one son. His name is Judah. So let's go to our reading today, page 39, Judah. At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hira. There Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and lay with her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son whose who was named Ur. She conceived again and gave birth to a son and named him Onan. She gave birth to still another son and named him Shelah. It was at Kezib that she gave birth to him. Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight. So the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, his second son, Lie with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to produce offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he lay with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from producing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight. So he put him to death also. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, Live as a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's house. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah, to the men who were shearing his sheep, and his friend Hira the Adolamite went with him. When Tamar was told, Your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that, though Shelah had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you? She asked. I'll send you a young goat from my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it? She asked. He said, what pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her and slept with her and she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. Meanwhile, Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adolamite in order to get back his pledge from the woman, but he did not find her. He asked the men who lived there, Where is the shrine prostitute who was beside the road at Anaim? There hasn't been any shrine prostitute here, they said. So he went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. Besides, the men who lived there said, There hasn't been any shrine prostitute here. Then Judah said, Let her keep what she has or we will become a laughingstock. After all, I did send her this young goat, but you didn't find her. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she is now pregnant. 
Judah said, Bring her out and have her burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, See if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her my son Shelah. And he did not sleep with her again. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand, so the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, This one came out first. But when he drew his hand back his hand, his brother came out, and she said, So this is how you have broken out. And he was named Perez. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out, and he was given the name Zerah. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, and we ask that you would add your blessing to it. In Jesus' name, amen. So was there any awkwardness in the room during the reading of the story? Uh, I'm glad that most of the children have left, although not all of them have, so um, talk to your parents at home about this story. Uh, But we're going to get into this, that this story is is like 1% about sex. And it's 99% about something else. We're going to get into what that other 99% is. But it's really more about something else going on. This is a very misunderstood text. And this is a very misapplied text in the history of the church, particularly uh, in other denominations. Uh, This text is actually more about power. This text is about justice. And this text is about identity. So we're going to find out why all that unfolds as we look at the text. So let's start again. Let's go right back to the beginning. And we find out that here's Judah, one of the brothers who threw Joseph down the well. The the action switches to Judah. And we find out that he has three sons. He marries a woman. uh, They have three sons together. And already there's problems in Judah's family. The oldest son, who's married to this nice young girl named Tamar, his name is Ur. E-R, Ur, we don't know anything about him except that he does something that's wicked in God's sight. We just don't know what it is. And all it says, very briefly, curtly, is that God puts him to death for his wickedness. That's the end of the story. That's probably all we need to know in this story. And so now, Judah tells his second son, Onan, well, we have this law, Onan, You remember what it is? The law of leveret marriage. You need to marry your brother's widow, and you need to have children with her so that those children will grow up and take care of her with Ur's share of the estate that he cannot inherit now because he's dead. Does everybody understand that? And the reason for this is so that Tamar, Tamar, can be protected in her old age so that she doesn't have to go off and live on on the generosity of another person or enter a life of prostitution or worse, or a life of slavery. And actually, those two things are similar, as we see. So Onan has an obligation, a moral obligation, to marry his sister, sister-in-law, and produce with her children for his dead brother, Ur. Now, this is the part that, the part that comes next is the most sort of misunderstood part. Onan makes a show of doing this to, to the rest of the world, he takes 
Tamar into his household. He takes her into his bed. And he, as far as anyone can tell, he is doing for her what is required by the law so that she could have these children that will inherit part of that property and take care of her in her old age. But what happens instead is that he refuses to do this. He refuses to give her children. And, and this is described in somewhat graphic terms, even in the text of the NIV. There's other texts of the Bible in English that are even more graphic than that. Now, remember I said this is sort of a misunderstood and misapplied text? This is a text that people have looked at and said, this kind of expression of sexuality is horrible and despicable and awful and um, and it's, it actually is more about pleasuring of yourself than it is about um, sort of creating a, a new life. And so uh, maybe some of you grew up in an age where you were told this story and you were told, be careful what you do with yourself or you might get smitten like Onan, right? Yeah, this is kind of some scared, this scared a bunch of teenage kids with this story is what happened. In fact, this name Onan you can look it up in the dictionary. Onanism is the act of pleasuring yourself. And you can find it in, you can find it in the dictionary. So that's, that's about as PG-13 as we're going to get now. Because we're going to move on. So you can breathe a sigh of release, relief. Because this is not what it's about. This is what it's thought to have been about. But this is not what it's about. Here's where the math comes in. This is what I call the arithmetic of justice. This is where the math comes in. Onan knew that if he produced offspring with his sister-in-law, those children would receive a double share of the estate. They would get two-fourths of the estate, he would get one-fourth, and his brother Shelah would get one-fourth. However, if he kept her from having children, her line would die off, and eventually she would be unable to have children, and they would just say, she gets nothing. And now the estate gets even more interesting because it's not divided three ways anymore, is it? It's divided two ways, but it's divided into three shares. Follow the math here? And Onan would get two of those shares, and his younger brother would get one of them. So he went from, he would go from having a quarter of the estate. If he keeps his sister-in-law childless, he now gets two-thirds of the estate. Does everybody understand that? It's just arithmetic. In fact, if you do, you dip into your fraction math. Remember fraction math? His share goes from one quarter to two thirds if he keeps his sister-in-law childless. How much more is two thirds than one fourth? Two and two thirds times as much. His, his, his wealth goes up 266.66666% if he keeps his sister-in-law childless. Is that motivation? You bet it is. You know what's funny is how some people say that they're terrible at math. Oh, I was never good at math in school. But when it comes to an inheritance, all of a sudden they're like Albert Einstein. You know what I mean? They're, oh, I, feel, I know exactly what my part of that is. Oh. Onan got the math. He got it. And he says, I'm going to use this math in my favor. And what's more is I'm going to take advantage of my sister-in-law who is in a vulnerable position in this family and has no rights. And I'm going to withhold from her the one thing that could assure her future of security and safety in this world. Is that messed up? Is that a little messed up? It is. So, 
So messed up. How messed up is it? So messed up that God does the same thing to Onan as he does to Ur. It passes judgment on it. God says, that was wicked. And now you will die. Which is harsh. He dies for this. Onan is put to death by God. We don't, we don't find out how or what it looks like, but he's, he's dead. So why is God so angry? Why is God mad about this? Justice uh, is being perverted by Onan. Uh, it's, the other thing, though, is that he's representing to the world that he's doing the right thing. Everybody else thinks he's doing the right thing. And he's going to pass it off as her inability to conceive. You get that? So he's being a total hypocrite. And he's kind of doing something that, that the younger son in the story of the prodigal son is guilty of. Sort of banking on the future death of his father and doing some calculus around that. That's considered really wrong. It's really considered wrong to be like, before your father even dies, to try to divide up the estate. That's what Onan is doing. So he's breaking relationship with his dead brother. He's breaking relationship with his sister-in-law. He's breaking relationship with his father. So his penalty is death. Now, let's move on in the story. It gets interesting, doesn't it? Isn't the Bible rich, how it describes family life and people's motivation? Um, would you all agree with me that this is really a lot more about greed? It's a lot more about power? It's not about that other stuff so much. That's, that's more incidental to the story. Now, Judah is beginning to get concerned. Are you concerned now? Two of my sons have died. I wonder if it's Tamar's fault. You know, it's like the first son takes Tamar, he dies. The second son, as far as he knows, takes Tamar and she dies. And, and Judah says, I've only got one son left. I'm not going to risk him on her. I don't know what the problem is in that thing. Maybe she, we don't know. And so Judah now has an obligation under the law of leveret marriage to give his final son to his daughter-in-law. Yet he refuses to do so. Now Judah is beginning to make some mistakes. And um, this is kind of how parents are in some respect. They don't want to think it's that they're, they don't want to think it's your children's fault. You know, you want to think it's the other person's fault. Oh, my kids, no, they, they, wouldn't, mess, they wouldn't make mistakes like this. Well, both his sons had real problems. Tamar, and this one is so far, is, is blameless. So Judah denies Tamar the arrangement with his youngest son, and he sends her away to his family. He abdicates his responsibility to her and says, go back to your family, go mourn there. They have to take care of you. They have to feed you. They have to look after you. He was probably crossing his fingers that some miraculous other person in the family would come along and want to marry her. You kind of see some stories like that in the story of Ruth, right? This, a closer or a, more, or a more distant relative might come and, and, and lay claim to Tamar, and that would make everybody happy as far as, as Judah is concerned. So he sends her away, and he abdicates his own relationship to her. Verse 12, if you look, want to follow along, finally Judah's wife has died, and business takes her, takes him someplace that's close to her town, where, where she is. And so she hears that he's going to be walking past at some point. And she hatches a plan. And this also is a little bit uncomfortable, right? This is really weird, right? This is, the, this is maybe the more challenging part of the text. She dresses up like a prostitute. And she waits by the side of the road for her father-in-law to come by. And he's enticed by this. He sleeps with her. And then they talk about the payment. Well, what does it cost? 
Well, uh, how about a young goat? Well, fine. Where's the goat? Well, he's not here. Well, you know, that's a great story. She said, why don't I keep some of what you own as a pledge, as sort of a deposit, until you can send me this goat? And so he says, whatever it is, name it. She says, I'll take your cord, which is, a, well, it sounds like it's a thing around his neck, and at the end of it is a stone seal that's been engraved. It's a way you signed a document back then. You would press this seal into a moist clay tablet to solemnize a contract that you made with somebody else that was written on this clay tablet. So basically, this was his driver's license with his signature on it, all right? She said, give me your driver's license. Give me your identification card. Give me the thing that proves that you are who you are and the thing that you use to make deals in this world. I'll hold on to it. And your staff, which everybody knows is your staff. I'll hold on to this stuff, and then you send me the goat, and then you'll get your stuff back. And so he says, fine. So we, that's, that's what happens. And then uh, we find out that she, has a, she becomes pregnant. Finally, finally somebody in Judah's family does for her the just thing that's required by the law, even though it's not one of her brothers-in-law, it's actually her father-in-law. And then we see that he's unable to get his identification back. He sends the goat. No, there's nobody like that around here. And so he thinks he's been duped. And, and he says, let's not talk about this because this could be embarrassing for us. Well, then we learn that uh, he hears that she is pregnant. His first response is, what? Let's take her out and burn her. Let's burn my daughter-in-law. This is kind of a weird, kind of a nice, nice father. Let's burn my father-in-law because she committed adultery. Does he say, let's go out and burn me? Because he committed adultery too, didn't he? he? Visited a prostitute. Total double standard in those times, wasn't there? And there probably still is. I hate to say it, right? Um, so, okay. They're bringing her out. They're ready to burn her. Uh, but then she sends this stuff. They, she sends back his driver's license and says, by the way, the father of my child is the man who belongs to these things. And then all of a sudden he has his revelation. And this is actually the most important verse in the whole story. Verse 26, you can follow along. Judah says, she is more righteous than I am because I would not give her my youngest son. So she went and took what she needed to fulfill justice in the world and, and in her life. So then we find that he takes her back into his house but doesn't have any more relations with her. And her sons will now receive Ur's share of the estate, her first husband, and they will then take care of their mother later in life. So, that's the story. And then she has the two, the two children. And that's, the, that's the end of the story. She has two sons, twins. But I want to focus on this phrase from Judah because he really sums it up perfectly. He says this. He says, she is more righteous than I am. She has done the right thing in this relationship. That word for righteous here is the Hebrew word tzedakah. It means right. It means morally right, doing the right thing under the law. But it means something else that is operating here. It is this idea of doing justice in a relationship that you're in, doing justice to a relationship that you have. And this is really the context in which we want to look at this, that this act of Tamar, of enticing her father-in-law as a prostitute, was an act of doing justice to a relationship that was broken, that was messed up. 
And this is a, I want to work with this, right? This is a challenging idea that by doing this thing, she was actually doing a righteous thing. It doesn't seem like a righteous thing at all, does it? I mean, nobody here would raise their hand thinking, oh, this is a, what she did was a great thing. Actually, Judah says she did the right thing. She did justice to the relationship. She brought about justice on her own terms because nobody else was giving it to her. So, um, what Onan and Judah did to Tamar was a failure of justice in their relationship with her. They did not do justice to their relationship with her. Um, what Tamar did was immoral by our standards, but it actually did justice to the relationship. It was actually a form of righteousness. Both Judah and Onan used their greater sort of social power to deny Tamar what she needed to survive. And so she's the only one who actually did anything about it that was righteous. So you may notice that in our story today, God and the scriptures seem to be silent on the ethics of what Tamar did. There's no condemnation in the text about what Tamar did. There's condemnation for Ur. He did something evil. We don't know what. There's condemnation for Onan. We, we thoroughly understand his evilness. And Judah condemns himself because he realizes he made a mistake. There is no reflection of, of anything bad about what Tamar has done except for what Judah says, which is that it was an act of righteousness. It was an act of, of doing justice to the relationship that they were in. So what can we make of this? And it's possible, but I want you to make up your own mind. It's possible that while God does care about our own personal sexual purity, and he cares about adultery, and he cares about how we express our sexuality, he seems to care about relationships between people more. I'm going to say that again. God does care about how you express your life in intimacy, within your family, within your marriage. God cares about that. That's important to God. God cares about prostitution. God cares about adultery. There are things that he's concerned about and, and in other places in the Bible speaks out very much against. But in this story, the relationships are more important than the incidentals of how this story unfolds. The relationships between Tamar and her father-in-law, Tamar and her two husbands, are more important than sexuality, more important than money, more important than inheritance. And I think that's where God wants us to go with this text. We need to be people who do justice to the relationships that we are in. That's what God calls us to. And, and those other things matter. But what matters more is this relationship. What matters more is relationships with each other. We, we even saw this when we were doing things like putting a floor in the ark or we're painting buildings. We decide that relationships are more important than paint and paint colors and floor choices. Relationships are more important than parking spots or whatever, whatever you have. Relationships take a higher priority and doing justice to relationships, having relationships that are in righteousness is important to God. The other thing that we find out is that God cares about life. God cares about those who are weak. Tamar is in a situation of high vulnerability in this family. Without children, she's not going to have any way to provide for herself in that society. 
She, she doesn't have social security. She can't collect that, right? She's not going to inherit anything unless she has sons. As messed up as we think that is, that's just how things were done back then, okay? She needed children to have a future. And she needed children to, so she could have children. She needed children so that she could be creative and be alive in this world the way God intended. God cared about that life of a vulnerable person more than adultery, more than prostitution, more than all those other things. God cares about life and he cares about relationships and he cares about justice in this small family and in the larger world. God cares about it. And I'll tell you, the rest of the story seems to bear this out. I told you that the chapter before this was Joseph and his brothers. He got thrown in a well. Then we have this little story about Judah, chapter 38. And after this, it goes back to the sort of the story of Joseph in Egypt and having his dreams and becoming Pharaoh's right hand in Egypt and his brothers going to him to buy grain because there's a famine in the land and they don't recognize their brother Joseph. And then Joseph tricks them. You remember this story? Joseph tricks them and he hides a silver cup in Benjamin's bag. And then he calls them all back and they, they find this silver cup. And, and Joseph says, Benjamin shall now be my slave while the rest of you go back. And Judah says to him, if we go back without our youngest brother, our father will die. We can't do that to our father. Take me. This is Judah talking now. Take me instead. Let Benjamin go back to Jacob. Judah had learned from this encounter with his daughter-in-law to do justice to, to relationships, to care about other people more than what was his. And that's a great development. What's even more amazing is at that moment when Judah says this, that's what breaks the facade for Joseph. And he finally breaks down in tears and he embraces all his brothers and said, it's me, Joseph. You meant this for ill, but God did something good out of it. It's really moving. That one act of selflessness of Judah was something that brought this relationship with all these brothers to a place of crisis and then resolution. It's beautiful. Judah learned from this story. Judah learned how to do justice to relationships. Well, you could say that God shows us in the rest of the story just what he wants us to learn, too. He wants us to value other people. He wants us to value justice. He wants us to value life. And these are questionable people in, a, in the middle of what I would call a really disturbing story. One thing we find is that God is in and among these people in their relationships, and he's urging them into right relationships with each other. Even last week, we saw this beautiful story of two brothers who reconciled with each other, Jacob and Esau. And it's actually one of the most touching stories of reconciliation ever. And reconciliation is just one aspect of doing justice to relationships. But there's also, and this is where I think we all need to listen and pay attention, there's also being aware when we are in places and spaces of unequal power in relationships. Do you all understand what I mean by that? I'm going to maybe explain it. For example, if you have children, and this is a very obvious example, you have more power in that relationship, and your child has less power. And that's the way it's supposed to be, because you need to raise and, and train your child. And so you have great power, and you, can, you could abuse that power. Your child is a vulnerable person in that relationship. Now, 
Not all relationships are between parents and children. There are relationships between people in this world where for whatever reason, there is more power on one side of the relationship and thus there's more vulnerability on the other side of the relationship. That's just how the world is. There's unequality in all these things. It could be financial, it could be physical, it could be power of influence or power of, of personality. We need to be aware when we're in that position of having more power in relationship so that we do justice to the relationship and don't fall into the trap of exploiting another person who's vulnerable. The other side of that is that you could be in a relationship where you're in the more vulnerable side, the side with less power. And maybe you can relate to this. I mean, as a young person, I remember being in relationships with older kids at school. They were bigger and stronger and they could push you around. It, it's, not, it's not a great place to be in that place of more vulnerability. We find that Tamar had a unique, novel, imaginative way out of this vulnerability that she had. And I'm not suggesting that that's, the <laughs> that's not the pattern for how you get out of all these vulnerabilities. But even in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about this. In Matthew chapter 5, when he says to turn the other cheek, that's, that's about a relationship of unequal power. When somebody strikes you on the cheek, they're stronger than you. When somebody makes you carry a pack, when somebody demands your cloak, that's a person who has more power than you. And you have to come up with a creative response to that power differential. You can listen to a sermon from March 16, 2014, where I talk a little bit more about that. Uh, and it looks at some of the work of Walter Wink. You can look it up on the church website. I can't say much more about it right now. But God cares about the vulnerable. He cares about the widow, the orphan, uh, the stranger in the land. He cares about Tamar and what she needs. And so he cares about relationships and justice being done in those relationships. So much so that we actually have Judah and Tamar and her son Perez are all mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. Did you know that? And actually, there's only three women mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. Tamar, Rahab, who actually was a prostitute, and Ruth, who was a foreigner, somebody from another country. All these people are ancestors of Jesus Christ. God is illustrating that he works through and in and with people who are vulnerable and marginalized. And his son Jesus comes out of all that family tree. So I think I have some questions for us as we look at this. The way God does justice to his relationship with us is that he becomes the vulnerable one. He goes and he sacrifices himself so that we can have life, just like Judah does for his younger brother Benjamin, because he loves life, because he loves us. And it's that sacrifice on his part that empowers us to do justice to all the relationships that we are in to give out of ourselves, and even if somebody is in need, and to value them higher than ourselves. Here's some questions that we want to take away from this text. Are you taking advantage of someone in your relationship with them? Do you have a greater power differential than them? Are you acting selfishly and out of your own self-interest? Are you denying another person dignity because you value what is yours? more than you do their own life. Judah came face to face with 
with his failures in this, but God redeemed him from it through the work of his daughter-in-law, through her innovation. And he'll do it for you, and he'll do it for me as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you want to do justice to your relationship with us by sending your son, Jesus. Help us to go into this world to do justice to the relationships that we are in this week. Amen.